This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by touringplans.com. Head over to touringplans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the crowd calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the touring plans to save time and money waiting in line. Touringplans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. We have a Hulk, people. A what? A Hulk. <laughs> Where did that come from? The Avengers movie. May you... 4th, 2012, my friend. May 4th, 2012. I got an idea. Maybe we should see that together. I think we should. And you know what? I think Bree should be there, and I think Cheryl should be there, and I think everyone that's listening to our voices right now should be there. I think so, too. Let's pick a day. Let's pick a day. Hmm. All right. Hmm. You well, know you what? Know, we... I... Oh. I'm going to be there near you on May the 19th. May 19th? Yes. Hey, that works really well because that's like Star Wars weekend or something. We talk about Star Wars all the time. We love Star Wars. We and, love Avengers. Yes, I was going to say, you know what else we love is Avengers. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we should do this. May 19th, let's have an Avengers meet at the Downtown Disney Movie Theater. Absolutely. All right, people, if you're listening to my voice, make your travel plans. Get down to Walt Disney World May 19th. All four of us are going to be there, and we are going to watch Avengers. We've been talking about it. We've been promoing it. But all of us are going to be at the Downtown Disney Theaters, and we're going to go see Avengers. It's our first Disney Film Project meet, and we expect every one of our listeners to be there. While we do have a day, we don't have a time yet, folks. So if you want to catch up with us and you're not sure how and you just want to be updated and you're not sure you're listening to this and you're just catching us now, um, the ways to do that are via email at disfilmproject at gmail.com, via the website at disneyfilmproject.com, via Facebook, Disney Fil- Dis- Disney Film Project, and via Twitter at DizFilm Project. And we will make a planned cast item for it as well. As soon as we get time, we'll yes, make a planned yes, cast will. item. But thus, get in touch with us via any four of those mediums. Um, send, you know, send any of us a message. That's right. But May 19th, people, be at Walt Disney World, be at the theaters. As soon as we have movie times, we will let you guys know when the time is going to be. But be there on May 19th. Make your travel plans now. Call your travel agent and tell them you've got to be there. The May 19th, Avengers Meet, Disney Film Project. Don't miss it. Welcome again, everybody, to the Disney Film Project podcast. This program is where we talk about the films of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, from the earliest films of Clara Cleans Her Teeth to John Carter, all the films in between we talk about here on this program and we learn about the wonderful things that the Walt Disney Company has put in front of us and the not-so-wonderful things. It, it, we, we talk about it all, so buckle up, folks, because we like to talk about movies. I am Ryan Kilpatrick, host of the program, owner, proprietor, and blogger over at DisneyFilmProject.com, where we also discuss the films of the Walt Disney Company, where you can find this show, you can learn about tweet watches, you can read blogs, you can do all kinds of fun stuff. 
Uh, I am joined, of course, by our fine film buff panel. First of all, we have Mr. Todd Perlmutter. He is chief technical officer over at DisneyDrivenLife.com. He is Mr. Blogger over at TouringPlans.com. He's a jack-of-all-trades, master of many. How are you tonight, Mr. Todd Perlmutter? I'm packing. Yeah, you are, because you're moving. I am. I'm moving. It's hard to believe. Not yeah. really. I need but, to move. Yeah. So so also packing this evening, I'm sure, is Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, who is the producer of this program, uh, who edits all of this into semi-coherence. Uh, and you can follow her travails as she does so on at Cheryl P3 or go to about.me slash Cheryl P3 and read about the wonderful things that she does to make this program work. How are you this evening, Cheryl? I'm doing good. I love the Florida DMV. I was able to change addresses, get new paperwork, everything via mail. It's like online, easy. <laughs> wow. Okay, so folks, for the first time in history, I think we have a recorded praise of a Department of Motor Vehicles. That needs to go down in the record book somewhere. I don't know. This thing could crash and burn now. <laughs> it really could. <laughs> really could. Uh, normally, we are also joined by Miss Brianna Alessio, who is a film buff and is also a blogger at DisneyDrivenLife.com, as well as over at Adventures of Brie at AdventuresofBrie.blogspot.com. She has a new job, so she won't be joining us quite as frequently for a little while until she uh, moves down to join the Perlmutters there in Florida. But uh, we will hopefully have stuff from her over at DisneyFilmProject.com on the blog, so go check that out as well. In the meantime... We will have some special guests joining us, and none more special than the one who is joining us right now. First of all, we have I – don't, I don't know how to describe this person. It would be uh, – he, he's a podcaster. He's a blogger. He's a videographer. He's an author. Uh, I believe he invented ice cream. I'm not sure. All the different things that he's done uh, are, are an inspiration to many of us. I'm sure if you are listening to this show, you have listened to his show over at WDWRadio.com. Mr. Lou Mangello, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, Lou? Good. Well, thank you for that. You forgot also, too, that I, am, I completely revolutionized the Florida DMV on Cheryl's behalf. So, Wow. That's really my claim to fame. That, that is amazing. <laughs> the podcasting stuff is secondary to the DMV stuff. That's the real gold right there. If, yeah. <laughs> if you can change the DMV, that is real power right there. Thank you for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Really, really been looking forward to this. Great. Cool. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. So as, as we do often when we have guests, we put them on the spot immediately because tonight our film that we are discussing is Peter Pan. And I have an inkling that this is a favorite film of our, our special guest, Mr. Lou Mangello. Without a doubt. I am a huge Peter Pan fan. I am a, still a seven-year-old boy trapped in a <clears throat> much older body. Yeah, I, I love the character. I love the film. I love the animation. I love the story. Uh, going back to the, the J.M. Barry original. So, yeah, love, love, love the film. It's, yes, and anybody who's listened to your show has heard you reference this many, many times, that this is your favorite film. When, when, do, when did you first fall in love with Peter Pan? Uh, I, I remember seeing it as a kid um, on VHS, you know, having the, the VHS player at home. And I love the, the – the, the, I think I fell in love more so with the character at first. Uh, I love the innocence – Listen, I've said it many times before, he is undoubtedly, in my mind, the greatest Disney character in history, and I can defend my position. Three years of law school, the only thing I can defend is my position on Peter Pan. Wow. And we're done. 
So <laughs> let's see. Tom, so you want me, you want me to sell it for you? Uh, you want me to I was going to say. I was going right. to say that seems like a challenge, but go. Why is Peter Pan the greatest character? Okay, see if I can remember this. He can fly. He never has to grow up. He lives on a private, you know, island. He hangs out with his friends all day. He has the affections of these beautiful mermaids and Wendy's and all these women after him. He gets to fight pirates and win. Uh, you know, and he could, did I mention he could fly? Um, forgetting the fact he has to wear tights. Everything else other than that is a win-win-win for Peter Pan. <laughs> it, you know, it's uh, interesting that you even say that, right? Because Barry wrote in the original work, he wrote that there's almost nothing that Peter can't do. Exactly. Right? So, I mean, he's, he was just very special in that way. So. Except he needs his shadow to fly and his shadow to be around him. I'm not yeah, sure I, I understand that concept totally, but I'm willing to learn. Yeah. I hear you, Cheryl. He does lose the shadow, so there's Listen, that. Listen, if that's the worst thing he has going for him, it's still a pretty good life. Who really wants a shadow following you around all day anyway? <laughs> it's a valid point. Very valid. Yeah. All right. So we're, we are talking about Peter Pan, uh, released in February of 1953. Uh, probably one of the most successful Disney animated films, the 14th film Disney released. It is uh, the last one that was distributed by RKO Pictures before Disney founded their own company, uh, Buena Vista Distribution, before uh, partially from the profits from this movie, uh, which they made a quite a bit of, almost $83 million to date. <laughs> and that's just from the box office of the movie, not to mention the uh, promotional merchandise. I have a question. In the movie, it said um, we, Disney got the rights from a children's home. Do they? Did they ever? Did they pay the rights? Did they pay the children's home for the rights? Did they have to give like um, royalties? Anyone know the background on that? Yeah, uh, J. M. Barry gave the rights to the story to the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. And so Disney had to negotiate with the hospital in order to get the rights. And it's actually something that, that Walt Disney wanted to do uh, very early on. It actually took a long time for him to negotiate with them and actually get the rights. Yeah. He, he, he had intended for it to be the second film, and it ended up being the 14th for a number of reasons. Right? Yeah. I mean, including World War II. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which kind of stymied all film production at the studio for a while. Yeah, Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, the film, like we mentioned, the film was very successful. Based on the J.M. Barry play, which we can touch on very briefly, um, it, it is the, the play itself is quite different from the film, uh, but establishes the character in the way that you talked about, Todd, which is he can pretty much do anything. Um, yeah. It's, um, well, it was... The uh, play was the, was not the original appearance of Peter Correct. Pan. Yes, right. Correct. It was it was originally a book within a book. Uh, the yes. book was called The Little White Bird, but only like five chapters of it were about Peter Pan. And later on, it got released as a sequel to the play itself, or prequel to the play. I'm unclear as to which it was. Though probably a prequel because he was younger in the story. Um, was and, was there Jar Jar Binks in the prequel? No, there wasn't Jar Jar Binks in the prequel. Okay, just checking. <laughs> but the movie does have a Star Wars connection. There you go. Yeah, it does. But we, we, you want to get to that now, just since I brought it up? You might as well. 
All right, so it's actually not the it's actually not the movie itself. It's the ride has a Star Wars connection. Did you know this, Lou? Uh, you said Star Wars connection. And I'm trying to think. Uh, the Peter Pan's flight has a Star Wars connection. It really does. Corey Burton, who is famous for imitating Hans uh, Conrad, who does Hook and Mister Darling, right? Right. Does he do work in Clone Wars? He does. He does three voices in Clone Wars that are very famous, plus a lot of side voices. He does Count Dooku. He does Zero the Hut and Cad Bane, all in Clone Wars. But yeah, the, the, the film itself is based on the, on the play Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up. Uh, and, and then uh, Barry also wrote other no- another novel called Peter and Wendy about, about Peter Pan. So this was, this was his character that uh, really made him, uh, made him famous and is, is hugely important uh, throughout, throughout Britain and, and throughout British literature. Yeah. It's uh, the... the- it's interesting. So there's a lot of elements in the movie that you don't really catch on to when you're older, but they're actually a little dark, right? And it's because the original work was actually actually a very dark work in concepts. I mean, you have Hook running around just killing the pirates randomly, you know, or on the like anytime yes. he he gets mad, he that so that whole thing with him throwing the guys overboard and stuff like that in the original work, that's him killing guys. Um, Fairies can be killed a lot easier than they can in the animated movie, because <laughs> all you have to do is say that they do, that you don't believe in a fairy, and the fairy dies. Right? That's they actually like spell that out in the book. They say every time a child says it doesn't believe in a fairy, somewhere a fairy dies. Right? <laughs> um, the pirates literally slaughter almost all of the red Indians in the book. Not sure if you're aware of that. So they don't just steal tiger lily. They slaughter all the Indians doing it. <laughs> I kind of think I like the Disney version better. Yeah, so, so, and, and, and it's just like on and on like that, just things like that. One of the things about Peter that um, – how many have read the novel at all? I have. Okay. I so started you, it, but I never finished it. One of the things that they touch on is that Peter has to remain forgetful in order to maintain his youth. So as a result – Anytime he starts to – anything he does, he for, tends to forget, mm. right? It, it's kind of that's, – that's like the power of that, that – the fuel that powers that. So he forgets things like Tinkerbell and um, that he even like cut off Hook's hand at one point. And um, I'm trying to remember, does Hook die in the book? Why do I think Hook dies in the book at the end? In the uh, original book? In the original book. I'm trying to remember. Uh, for some reason, I think he dies. But it, it, like, there are things that just Peter generally forgets. And it's like big things, important things, and they just like, tend to go away to him. So it's very interesting. Like at the end – and I know I'm jumping. Here I am jumping, right, where he makes that whole thing about how important Tinkerbell is, is to him. And yet – yeah. and as you know, the or, if you know where it comes from, it's pretty interesting. So – Sorry, just a sidetracking me thing. It's what I do, Lou. <laughs> no, you're, and you're 100% right about, you know, it's not only darker, it's a lot less violent than the book was. You know, there's a whole thing about, you know, uh, the poison and stuff like that that's not there. But I think the, the important thing is uh, almost less about the specific storyline and things like that. It are the moral values that Disney pulled out. I think that has been consistent from the original play and sort of what it was trying to teach. So the positive stuff was, was definitely pulled out of it, but in order to keep it as, as Disney-fied as they could be, 
because um, I think, it, remember, in the original play, uh, I think it was Tinkerbell who died at the end, and the audience had to uh, applaud in order to bring her back to life that obviously wouldn't translate yep. into a film. Right. It, it was uh, – the, the bomb is repla- – it replaces the poison in the, in the uh, play. Right. Is what happens, and she takes the poison for Peter in the in the uh, in the play, and then, like you said, they have to clap. But it's kind of interesting because, like, if you've ever gone to the uh, the store that's in Frontierland by Splash Mountain in the morning when they do the pixie dust thing there, they actually have you clap to bring Tinkerbell out to wake her, wake her up, and that's supposed to be paying homage to the clapping that they cut out of the play, out of the movie. Hmm. Todd, I'm correcting you. That 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 shop is actually in Fantasyland oh. by by the well. Where did, is that? Where I got pixie dust in my hair? That is true. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. If you ever want, if you ever want a cheap way of getting someone to get pixie dust in their hair and don't they don't want to go to the barber shop, this is the place to go. They have like apparently tons of pixie dust over there. I apologize. I just got a visual in my head of Todd with pixie dust in his hair, and I couldn't. Help yeah, that that was actually the most disturbing part of the whole conversation. I was completely yeah. off track. No. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what can I tell you? <laughs> but Lou, I think your point though about the morals being pulled into this are in, into the Disney film are really spot on because this the the play was adapted into lots of other mediums it's been adapted into you know even the the hook film by Steven Spielberg and several other things but in in many of those other things like you i i've tried to keep up with peter pan and read a lot of this stuff in a lot of those other things that stuff doesn't come through as much it's much more about just the adventure mm-hmm. and not about you know the morals and and what's you know the values and things that are imparted in this film I, I don't think there's another adaptation that speaks to that as well as this does. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely uh, a, a series of lessons to be learned. Uh, and, and in true Disney fashion, not just lessons to be learned by children, but lessons to be learned by their parents as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, talking about the way the movie unfolds, that's sort of how the movie unfolds, right? Because we, we, get, we zoom in uh, to the Darlings household where the Darlings are getting ready and the kids are playing, talking about Peter Pan, and George and Mary Darling are getting ready to go to a party. So immediately we're thrust into this world where it looks like there are two separate worlds, right? There's the, the adult world where uh, they are getting ready to go to the party, and the kids where they're living it up trying to be Peter Pan. And it's the intersection of those two worlds that causes the first conflict in the movie and kind of is the inciting incident for Peter to, to come back. Yeah, they cut out the whole scene where family services comes over to find out why the dog is taking care of the three children instead of the adult. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's kind of interesting too because if you notice, there's a, there's a, a definite line between the two worlds as well, Ryan. It's because yeah. the the kids' world is contained in the nursery. It's not outside the walls of the nursery. There is no play. It's only inside the walls of it. Yeah, and that's why that's why Wendy and everyone else reacts with such shock because George Darling gets in in a snit, which uh, having kids, I will admit, I've never ever done. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm pausing to wait for the lightning to strike me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he gets he gets you know he's getting ready and he, he's getting all sorts of interruptions. He gets into a snit of sorts and then banishes her from the nursery, and that and that's why everyone reacts that way. They just are taken aback, like you can't 
banish her from the nursery because, like you said, Todd, there's no play outside the nursery. Um, and, and that seems almost a fate worse than death to these guys. Yeah. Yeah, and I love the Wendy character, too, because I think – and Kathy Beaumont, I think, did a, a wonderful job of striking the balance between sort of having that, you know, snobby sort of Edwardian, uh, sort of prim and proper, but she's also a very vulnerable character as well, too. And you saw it, like, right from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because like, as much as you were joking about Nana taking care of them or, – or Nana, rather um, – it's Wendy who's who's kind of the the mother hen to the two boys, but yet she's still a kid herself, and she's definitely striking that balance both in, in you know in, in her responsibilities and her mannerisms. And you see that in the in the sequel where Jane where Jane gets to go to Neverland, and and Wendy Wendy and, you know she's gracefully acknowledging Pan, but you know but she's not like over overcompensating it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's funny to watch Wendy sort of go from, again, being that sweet, innocent, vulnerable to now all of a sudden she's jealous of the, again, why Peter Pan's the best character, Tinkerbell, the mermaids, and Wendy are all fighting for his affection. And now there's this, this feminine jealousy that goes on. Of course, the mermaids do try and drown her, but that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> So she, goes, she does grow up a lot in uh, in a short amount of time in the movie too. Well, it, she's infatuated with Pam, but she at the same time she doesn't take his actions very well a lot of the time, right? She doesn't put up with him. Yeah, hey. that, yeah. <laughs> well, that's so, what in, that's what infatuation's about, right? Any little thing is gonna set, is gonna set her off because she's so smitten. Yeah. Any, any any little slight or anything like that is going to be, you know, a, the biggest thing ever. It's almost like she's a teenager. And I think her maternal instincts almost kick in at a very early part, too, because now all of a sudden she is uh, a, more of a mother to Peter Pan and, and the Lost Boys as she is uh, a peer. Yeah. Well, and it, it, that only grows, right, as the whole movie goes on. Yeah, she's bringing the guys down, man. They're hanging out in her man cave on the island. There's Wendy just messing <laughs> the whole thing up. It's what she was brought there to do, though, so you know, it's, it's its own fault. <laughs> it's right. It's it's Pan's fault himself. Uh, but after after Wendy's banished from the nursery, you know, the, the, it's uh, Peter Pan shows up uh, at, and looking for his aforementioned shadow, uh, which I, I'm still confused on how the two of them got separated. But I love the fact that they don't pa- they don't pause the movie to explain it, uh, and in fact that's something that happens throughout the movie, right? We don't we don't really get a lot of all you know we don't have to have all the explanations for why this world is the way it is. It's just a fun place to be, and let's move on, you know. And I I really like that about this movie as opposed to some movies of this era as well as future Disney movies feel the need to go in and explain everything in detail as to how things got the way they are and that can be done well it can also be done very poorly this this movie gives you everything you need to know in context or in dialogue and says you're here let's go yeah, yeah and you don't care about that suspension of disbelief you just buy into it you don't care why he can fly you just acknowledge it that's the power that he has yep absolutely 
but so Peter has to come and get his shadow back, and he finds out about the fact that Wendy's been banished from the nursery, and decides that it's time to take her to, with him to Neverland, so that she doesn't have to grow up. And of course, John and Michael, her brothers, have to go along, much to the, uh, the disdain of Tinkerbell, uh, as you <laughs> mentioned, Lou. She is not pleased with the whole Wendy situation. No, she's not happy about this whole female jealousy thing. And it only gets worse later because you got got Tiger Lily in there. So a lot of ladies uh, fighting for Peter's affections. You know know where this comes from is uh, in in the original play, um, what happens is is that um, one of – remember we were talking about Peter's abilities before? One of the important things he mentioned – that's mentioned about Peter in the original work is that he can't be touched by anybody else. So the stage direction, the play is actually such that no, that no other character is allowed to come within any contact of Peter Pan at all ever. Okay. So even when, even when they fly, like here, they hold hands in the, in the cart, in the animated movie, in the original work, they don't hold hands or anything when they do a stage production of this. Okay. Cause it's not, it's not permitted. It's like, it's like the, the, and the other tradition of the play, as you know, is that the same person always plays Hook and Mr. Darling. That's, those are the two traditions for this play. And so what happens is, is that Tinkerbell gets upset because Wendy says she's going to go kiss Peter. And that's actually a moment where they were pointing out the fact that nobody's allowed to actually touch Peter. Right? So, oh, she, okay. so that, that, that's one of those ways that they keep playing homage back to the original work. It, it, which happens in a few other places. Like I said, the, the hook and Mr. Darling thing. Except the squaw's nose can touch Peter. Yeah, Tiger Lily likes to uh, rub some noses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed that, for sure. So they, they fly off to Neverland, and, and this is when we get introduced to, here's what I will, I will say, Lou, the best Disney villain ever, ever yeah. presented on film, Captain Hook. Yeah, and I think part of what makes him such a villain is that he is a villain, and I think he very much sort of embodies and is meant to kind of represent, uh, you know, George Darling, uh, you know, the Darling parents, because I think there's a, a, a sense of reality to him. He's not like a villain that you can't associate with because he is a human villain, he's got human characteristics, and is, is very much like the Darling's father, um, you know, he, he is a bad guy. I mean, he not only in the play and, and in the book kills pirates, if you notice, he actually does it to the singing pirate in the film as well. His yep. only mission in life is to obviously ultimately kill Peter Pan. Um, so, yeah, he's uh, he other than Claude Frollo, who's a really bad dude, <laughs> Captain Hook is one of the worst of the Disney villains, I think. Yes. I, I mean, by contrast, uh, we, we actually talked about – we actually did Hunchback, and the reason why I think Froyo is just more evil because Froyo is insane, and I don't think Hook is insane. He's just um, focused. Obsessed. Obsessed. And, it's, and yeah. whereas – not that Froyo isn't, but Froyo is not a normally thinking person. Yeah, that whole Esmeralda scene, man, that, that's a dark and creepy guy going on in there. He needs some serious – he needs two psychotherapists, not just yeah. one. Yes. Agreed. Yes. I, I actually think he would have been better served going to the priest for an exorcism than to try and find <laughs> someone. But that's a whole other thing. 
But but Captain Hook was animated by Frank Thomas. We met you mentioned his voice, Lou Hans Conried, who voices Mister Darling, also voices Captain Hook. Sort of a a synergistic uh, piece of piece of work there to to show the display between the adults and Captain Hook. But to me, just his his movements, his mannerisms, his style, the design of the character. I mean, like. It's hard to find a character that just comes together any better than Captain Hook. And, of course, my favorite villain sidekick, Mr. Schmee. Let me ask you one quick question. What do they call Captain Hook before he lost his hand? James. Oh, see, that's why I love you, Todd Pomutter. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever read the, uh, the Starcatcher novels? I was going to say, that, you know, we can even talk about the, the continuing saga of Peter Pan and the sort of this resurgence with, uh, with, with the um, Pearson and Barry books, too, yeah. yeah. Well, it, the Starcatcher novels are interesting because I, there is um, Hook. Uh, they, they go into that Hook and um, Peter were actually friends originally who both arrived at Neverland together, but Peter bought into it and Hook didn't and aged and Peter didn't, and then they ended up hate, and hated Hook. Ended up hating Peter for it, and I thought that was just you know, which is a which is very different than the original work, but a nice. It's kind of like a nice retcon, you know, like they do for comic books, which is retroactive continuity for those people who I realize I just use a comic book term for. <laughs> there we go. That's right. And uh, so I, you know, it's 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 fun stuff. I mean, I don't want to you know get go too into that, but. No, I mean you're right though. It, it it is a resurgence now between between that uh, the Starcatcher novels. I mean Disney now has Jake and the Neverland Pirates on on Disney Channel and soon to be Disney Junior. And uh, my children, or specifically my five year old daughter, is obsessed with it. So is my wife Cheryl. <laughs> I actually wasn't obsessed until I saw the movie that they did. Um, they did a Disney Channel movie. With Peter Pan coming to visit the the Never the Jake and the Neverland Pirates, they don't kind of explain the history. They just he just kind of shows up and says, "I'm here," and he hang and and now I'm obsessed with like, what was he doing? I mean, obviously this was at time after the movie, um, it, but he explains he's traveling around. He's not in one place. Uh, obviously, um, Tinkerbell's not with him at this point, um, so that's an interesting part as well. Is that Tinker that Tinkerbell is not with them, and I just it's it's like very interesting to me where this is going. I mean, I don't think it's going anywhere because it's a kids' cartoon. <laughs> but, but it does kind of gets all these theories into my head because you you're like, okay, where's Tink? Uh, is she at this point back with fairies in her own series land, or and then and then Peter says he's traveling. Why is he traveling? Why is Hook now focused on Jake and the pirates and not on Peter? And it's all kind of confusing but enjoyable. I don't. Know it's like Three's Company for a whole new generation. <laughs> there you go. I think Tink went all diva. She gets a walk. She gets a star on the Walk of Fame. She gets her own series, <laughs> and she's done with Peter. 
I could I could totally see that based on her characterization in this movie. I could totally see that. And she gets a boyfriend. <laughs> uh, yeah, apparently. In, in, yeah, in, in, the, in the Tinkerbell movies, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, Tink, Tink, Tink. She she's uh, trouble. Yeah, less of romance. Yeah. She she is trouble in this because I mean from the get go, like like you mentioned, Lou, the women are fighting over Peter Pan. She's uh, she she asks she flies in and has the Lost Boys shoot down Wendy. I mean, there's jealousy and then there's outright <laughs> violence. Yeah, these 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 sort of. You know, prepubescent kids are having a, a real wide range of emotions going on here. They're dealing with a lot at a very young age. <laughs> yeah, this is very true. Yes. Barry actually provided uh, an explanation in the books as to why Tinkerbell is so overly emotional. Is because of her size, she can only hold one emotion at a time. So when she's jealous, she's completely jealous. When she's mad, she's completely mad. When she's happy, she's completely happy. Right, you, know, you do. You did mention something before, and I wanted to just make sure. You know, I, I wanted to mention it too because when I, you were asking me about why this is one of my favorite films, and I talked about the characters and and uh, the character development and just the story too. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about. You know, I'm sure we'll get to the music at some point. But I did want to mention too. This is actually it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, if you're familiar with Disney animation, it's it's really the last film that all of the nine old men had their hand on, and, and we look at, um, if you are, are a fan of Disney animation, you will very much get a sense of the hand of a Mary Blair and a John Hench and a Don DeGrotti and a Claude Coates back there. I mean, the true legends of Disney animations all touched this film, and you can very much see that, I think, in it. And it's a beautiful film to watch just in, in how it was drawn, how it was animated, uh, and the backgrounds as well, too. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I, as you could probably tell, am a huge fan of Disney animation, and it is literally when you when you start naming the names that you named. Some people who are listening might not know who those people are, but everything that everything that you think of when you think of the word Disney and an animated film is in this film, and every person who created that thought in your head <laughs> worked on it because those folks. Uh, that you mentioned are literally Disney legends and the nine old men. Uh, this is, this is kind of their tour de force as a group. Yeah. And so, I think it's, I think it's some of their best work. I mean, you know, a, a Mark Davis. I mean, you may not know all these names, but chances are you've heard the name of a, a Mark Davis, a Frank and Ollie award Kimball. Um, you know, though their, their impressions are, are, you know, forever embedded in this film. And you, if you're familiar with the work, you'll be, you're able to pick it up throughout the movie. Yeah. I, I also think the it's what I like about it is the animation itself from back then always stands the test of time and this movie is a really good example of that. That you know, that's a really good point, yes. I mean it, it, I mean it is it is better than a lot of the animation coming out today in terms of visual, you know, acuity and look and color and on and on and on. Well and I think too it's it's a case where um, I get tired of people saying, "Oh, well, you know, hand-drawn animation just isn't the, isn't relevant anymore." And you know, fortunately, most folks in the Disney community aren't that way. But if you were to watch this and watch Tangled, as 
I was fortunate enough to do back to back. Both are great movies, but you cannot accomplish the same things in in a computer as you can with hand drawn animation. Not even close. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. Especially with uh, things like background. Certainly, um, you know, it, it's come a long way, and I think Princess and the Frog. Some of the the scenes and the backgrounds there in the bayou are, are beautifully hand drawn, and some of the New Orleans scenes are too. But there is uh, a warmth that you get, especially in some scenes, I think, of Peter Pan because it's hand-drawn. Um, and again, seeing some of the work of, you know, guys like a Bill Justice and a Blaine Gibson in there uh, really, I think, are what set, set this film apart. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the, the backgrounds themselves are just sort of stunning vistas. Like when they get to Neverland and you're looking at the backdrops of, of Neverland beneath them, or as they're going through the forest when, when Peter Pan sends the Lost Boys and John and Michael off to fight the Indians. You know, just those backgrounds in and of themselves are pure works of art, and then to see the characters moving across them. Uh, so, I mean, I guess the word is effortlessly. You, you, don't, you don't think about these being drawings, and there are hand-drawn films where you, you get that impression. I'll give a recent film that you do get that impression with is um, The Secret of Arrietty. Yeah. We, you definitely do get that impression. It, it's it's definitely, you can definitely see as, you know, going from one that we've recently seen to another. It's, it's a totally two different mediums, but both same darn hand, hand-drawn animation. Well, and even even films that I that I do enjoy a great deal, like like the late some of the later Disney films, like Hundred and One Dalmatians or Aristocats, you, stylistically they made a choice to make those films the characters a little more sketchy. Uh, you know, they look they look more sketched in, and that's that was a design choice. But they the effect of, has a little bit more makes the characters feel like drawings, whereas in this they feel more three dimensional, more rounded, more more full. Uh, than they do in some of those later films, at least to me. Yeah, well, I actually kind of... I mean, I know you're talking about mermaids and, you know, you know, Indians and stuff like that, but to me, they feel very... Even though they're animated and you see that, they also feel have a very real quality to them. Overall, yeah. you know, that's... I kind of look at them and I kind of just feel like I... Peter Pan feels believable and real to me despite that he's flying. Yeah. He, uh, the, well, I mean, when we talked about this from the beginning, it's, it, it just feels real when you come into it. You know, like they set the rules, you suspend your disbelief, and you're, and you're off and running. And, you know, one of my complaints originally when I, when I first watched the movie, I didn't like it as much as I do now. Uh, when I was younger, I've actually grown to like it more and more the older I've gotten. Uh, which probably has more to do with the fact that I want to be Peter. I want to never grow up like Peter Pan. The more I grow up, but one of my first, initial complaints about the movie was like I felt like it wasn't it, it story wise. It wasn't as linear as I wanted, but it actually is. It's just in a subtle way. Like so, for example, the first time we see Hook, he's trying to figure out where Peter Pan's hideout is, and he just drops the line of you know maybe Tiger Lily, and then we kind of get you know, distracted into what the kids in them are and, and Wendy coming in and they start shooting at Peter Pan and the kids. But the thread is there all the way through. But frankly, you know, when I was younger, I just didn't notice it. And so I think yeah. the film is really well crafted in that way. 
plus it, it plays the stuff that Cheryl always says is like when sometimes you um you don't get enough backstory about a character, but that whole map scene in less than two and a half minutes you get Hook's entire backstory, the entire backstory of the fight between him and Peter Pan, how he lost his hand, the crocodile, all this stuff in in a really super short amount of time, and it's just in the dialogue. And it's funny. Yeah, it's very funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's where you get a lot of sense of, of Mark Davis in there. I think that's where you sort of see the some of the Mark Davis work that kind of uh, slapsticky stuff that's in there. And you're right; they did. I think they do a great job of taking a story where they had to cut so much out because of time and because of what they were able to extract from the original play and the original story mm-hmm. and work it in there without it becoming a, okay, now we're going to tell you the history of Peter. This is where Peter came from and this is where it came from. They're able to sort of fill it in very well. Yeah. Right, because that was one of the big problems is, is Walt, was, Walt had always wanted to do it, but he never he – he, he wanted to figure out how to work all that stuff in like you said, but at the same time he said, but the movie just doesn't really start until Peter shows up in the nursery, so why don't we just start there? It's like Star Wars, right? We start with episode four, and then we go back to the first three that we're not going to talk about. Right. There are three that's <laughs> right. before that. What are you talking you about? You shall not speak. Jake Lloyd, you ruined the franchise. Anyway. <laughs> okay, I like Clone Wars, Lou. I really do. Clone Wars, Clone Wars is a good series. So. The, the animated series is actually better than the first three movies. The, the one, two, three. Not the original New Hope stuff, but the, the, uh, Anakin, with you. Uh, the Anakin saga. With you. I'm hoping they do it. I, I would like to see a series next between three and four. That's what I'd like to see. I just want them to redo and re-release the Star Wars Holiday Special on Blu-ray. That's what I'm holding out for. So what happens when they hit the island, we have John and Michael go off uh, with to, to fight the Indians and get captured. And we learn about the dynamic between the Lost Boys and the Indians, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie, which is... You know, sometimes we win, sometimes they win. I feel like that's a metaphor for life. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's got a 50-50 chance. Yes. But at the end, they let you go, right? I, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, if, if only, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, so I... Lou mentioned it, so I'm just going to go right into it. Um, the, when they're going to find the Indians, that's actually my fa- the following the leader thing. It's like my favorite song in the whole movie. I don't know why. I just dig it. It's one of those things. If you've ever like watched parades or fireworks with me, you know I dance. <laughs> and, and hearing this, I just want to get up and dance and, and you know march along. And so I just I like that whole scene, that whole music. Yeah, I think there's a, a number of songs in here that are, are just, you know, they're, they're beautiful. Obviously, Second Star to the Right and You Can Fly, um, Following the, the Leader is one of them. I, I love, uh, you may recognize the Mellow Men in there. Uh, the Mellow Men, you, here's your theme park connection, um, Haunted Mansion. Those are the Mellow Men, or the, the singing bus. But I think the, the interesting part about the music, too, is like... In aspects of the film itself, as long as we're talking about the Indians, there there's there's also a, a, a degree of controversy too, especially in one of the songs that certainly and Ward, I think it was Ward Kimball even said, you know, if we were to do this again, we probably wouldn't have included this in there, which is what makes the Red Man Red. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah watching it watching it now is a little uncomfortable, but 
the the bad part for me is I actually really like the song and the animation that goes with it. I think the song is very is very good as far as like the 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 music to the song, and the animation is really good. And I enjoy the dancing, and I also I really enjoy the uh, squaw go get him firewood. That makes me laugh <laughs> every, every time. That makes me laugh. Yeah. But it it is a little insensitive. Um, it, it's actually though it's it's not it's part of the fact that Disney was trying to keep true to the actual original work because right. that's how Barry presented yes. the Indians. It's not that's not Disney's depiction of them, right? Which is what well, I, I think too. Like w- these are these are presented as Indians, not as actual American Indians. I think they're more just sort of a a caricature. Right. right, and and that's the way Barry presented them, and that's the way they're presented here, because even in their shorts that, that that were coming out at this time, Disney had already sort of backed away some from some of the the characterizations they had done in earlier shorts of you know American Indians and and, and other cultures as well. So I think this was not, it, while it, today it probably seems a little different at the time, it was very harmless. Right. Well, remember, it's 1953. The word politically correct just did not exist in vernacular. It was no. just not. And right, wrong, or otherwise, there were stereotypes that were portrayed by Disney and others in a lot of their films. And certainly, um, you know, you can touch on things like Fantasia, you know, and the aristocrat, aristocrats that probably would not have the same characters or been written the same way. But it was, at the time, it was just the norm. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's those sort of stereotypes that were present going back to Barry were carried forward, obviously wouldn't be made in 2012. No. Right. And that's why, like, like certain movies are not being released. I, um, Song like of the what? South, because oh. of those, because, you know, we, they can't be released. Because which, of the political correctness. Yep. Which uh, which starred uh, Bobby Driscoll, who was the voice of Peter Pan. That was his yes. first movie for Disney, uh, and he ended up going on to film quite a quite a few more films for Disney, uh, and and being the voice of Peter in this one. So, mm-hmm. my favorite song has always been "You Can Fly," just just the hope and the the joy in that song. I've always enjoyed that one uh, from this, but the the music in general, I. It's it's interesting because you know a lot of the uh, the the '90s Disney films. So it's, I think it's a, it could be a generational thing, but I'll, I'll see what you guys think. A lot of the '90s films are structured much more like Broadway musicals, whereas these earlier Disney films from Snow White on, even though they have the musical element to them, the songs are very short, very to the point. Uh, not you know the the story is mainly told through the. Uh, through the dialogue and the action as opposed to in some of the, the 90s films it's told through as a musical and I find that younger folks that, than, than I and, and unfortunately for, for, for me uh, seem to think that you know Disney musicals are more along the lines of the 90s films and, and when you try to show them some of these older ones if they haven't seen them already they don't you know, they might not understand the music and understand the role that it plays in some of these earlier films as opposed to, you know, like a Beauty and the Beast or an Aladdin or something like that. Yeah. I mean, this, this movie om- almost never loses its musical voice. I mean, the, the music plays constantly throughout. Yeah. Right. There's, whereas in the modern movies, it's the music tells a, tells a story. This tells that the music is just another character. 
Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's just interesting when you talk to kids these days who grew up on those movies, right? Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, um, you know, the, the Little Mermaid, and those. They they hear the film, they hear the music from those movies, and that's kind of the the, the soundtrack of their childhood. And then I hear I hear you know you can fly, and I you know when I hear that I'm I'm right back on Peter Pan's flight as a five year old kid with my grandparents at Walt Disney World. <laughs> I'm just laughing because you because you and I still haven't read Peter Pan's Flight yet, have we? We haven't. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Wait until we do, <laughs> and, and we will. Shall we set that up for May? I believe you should. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we can set that up in May. Uh, I I think Lou, you you've I don't think you and I've ridden together either. But see, I don't know about you because I know that the ride Peter Pan makes me very excited. I tend to hang over the side of it and look down constantly. Which drives some people I'm riding it with nuts because I really think I'm going to fall out. <laughs> if you fell out of the attraction and yeah. crushed the London scene, you would be breaking. A Tinkerbell would, would lose her wings. You would crush the lives of millions if you did that. But I am like you. I look over the. I, I think, like the film, I think the attraction is classic and timeless and always crowded because it, its beauty lies in its simplicity. It's not a complex thing. It's not a high-tech thing, but it's a, it's a great visual storytelling of the film in three dimensions, and that's why it's remained basically unchanged for 40-plus years. Yeah, it's, it's the one ride I would chain myself to if they ever said they were going to take it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, Lou, you talked about all the backgrounds and the, and the, and the design of the, the film. The design of the ride captures that, I think... To, to my mind, better than any of the other dark rides. Yeah, I think even the, the conveyance system itself, you know, the fact that you are, and it's just simple, you know, every other attraction, for the most part, you are carried or pushed or pulled from below. Here, the sense of floating and flying, you really buy into it. I mean, you, I think you get a sense of flight here more than anything else other than maybe soaring. Maybe that explains why Soren is my other favorite attraction. See, you all wish you could fly, just like Peter Pan. Best character ever. I <sighs> am holding my ground. <laughs> so it's, it's the, it's the lawyer. Flying. <laughs> it's, it's the lawyer in him. I, I, out. I, I picture his office has one file cabinet covered in gold that just says Peter Pan on it, and it's all his defense <laughs> about Peter Pan. <laughs> Somebody actually made up uh, a, a collage and I'm looking at it's too far for me to look at it from here, but there are nine panels in it, and it's why Peter Pan is the best character ever. Oh, can you send me that link? <laughs> I have to get it off my wall, and because I'm sure that I missed something in there too. Okay. Uh, you- something I wanted to mention really quick was um, one the one attraction I missed that kind of made me want to fly other than, other than soaring in, in, in PPN is the Delta Dream Flight that uh, used to be over by um, by Tomorrowland. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Um, the other thing is um, I really didn't notice till till one of my friends told me is that I, the cars in the London scene, I love how they they move around. And I wished kind of the ships move around too. That's actually where all the pixies are. They're actually the ones driving the cars. 
You know what I wanted to mention real quick too, just quickly going back to the Indians as we were thinking about that and we were talking about the Lost Boys. Um, were you guys fans of, of Lost, the TV show? Was I fans of a fan of Lost? Yes. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to bow out at this point and let Todd talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to take that as as so did you did you ever catch the Peter Pan Lost Boys reference in Lost? No, I'm not caught recalling at the moment. No. But. So there's a scene. Oh god, it's probably one of the last couple of series where the others are walking through the forest and they're, they're watching oh, them. Oh, yes, dragging, dragging the bear. And he's dragging the teddy bear, just like in, this, in when the Indians carry off the Lost Boys. Yes, yes. So, uh, by the way, Lou, you should know when you asked that question, I am one of the three people who started Lostpedia. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do what I know. <laughs> so, there you go. That's why we're all laughing. <laughs> And, and I'll be honest, I've only seen two episodes. I gotta go. <laughs> I I haven't seen any, but I watched oh, the Once Upon a Time, though. I watched Once Upon a Time, which is by the same writers. I, I think this is a great time to just discuss some of my other favorite uh, <laughs> in other movies, because since Lou went there, what Pixar movie references Neverland? In The Incredibles, Nomanistan Island, which is Syndrome's home base, is designed to look exactly like Neverland. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool, actually. Um, as you know, um, Tinkerbell closes out Who Frames Rob- Roger Rabbit with Porky Pig, which is, to my knowledge, the only time they appear on screen together. Yes. Um, the original Muppet Show did a did a skit that played Never Smile at a Crocodile, where the crocodile eats the Muppet at the end, which is, which is perhaps one of the funnier Muppet Show moments ever. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, that, is a, that is a fabulous skit. Yes. In, in Superman the movie, um, Lois Lane refers to Superman as, Peter, as being like Peter Pan. Right? Mm. And um, okay. what Starship Captain... Quotes Peter Pan. Captain Kirk. Second star to the right. Straight on till morning. Yes. And he's actually quoting the movie because that's not the quote from the book. So the the middle of the film, we have this great we have this great sequence these great sequences of the Indians. We also have the mermaids. Um which you want to talk about jealous women. Mm -hmm. That's um those are some jealous women. Trying to drown Wendy, <laughs> uh, which is quite amusing. And then, of course, we also have um, the the kidnapping of Tiger Lily, which we we mentioned. Hook was interested in. That is my favorite part of the movie. Is when uh, Peter Pan and Wendy are in the cave and trying to rescue Tiger Lily, and when Pan is imitating Hook's voice. Again, that's a moment that always makes me laugh. Is, is it because of the way he does it? He's just sitting on the rock, lounging yes. around while doing it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew you would understand, Todd. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's he's tricked Mr. Smee, which, frankly, that's not that hard, <laughs> and and that he, he has him going back and forth between Pan and Hook. I mean, it's an old gag, 
right? Don't get me wrong. And we've seen it in other cartoons and things before, but it's just so well done here. And then Pan sitting there speaking into his hat. It's it's just so silly. It's funny, and it's it, it's a great moment. It speaks a lot to who the character is, because he's in a deadly serious situation, but he can't help himself but have fun with it. And I think that helps to alleviate again those sort of dark overtones of what we're talking about. Again, we've got kidnapping, attempted murder, drowning. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on here, so <laughs> it definitely keeps the film light. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, but the the ultimate jealous woman, though, uh, as we've mentioned before, is Tinkerbell, and it is her uh, not betrayal, uh, but her her information and Hook's manipulation of her that that leads to the end game of the film. Because he he may, he figures out uh, Smee tells him that Tinkerbell has been banished because of her trying to shoot down Wendy, and and manages to get Tinkerbell aboard the ship where Hook plays her like a fiddle, which is also quite amusing. It, it it's one of my favorite hook moments because I, first of all it starts even before she's kidnapped because he puts on the, the his gold Sunday hook yes <laughs> which is just awesome and and then but the scene with him playing the piano it, it's just it's surreal right but because you've seen it in like other like I mean you've seen that scene in live action movies. Right? Yeah. Where the guy's at the piano playing to his captured person, right? And it, it, that's what I mean when the characters seem so real, even though they're animated, is Hook is just a real guy having, trying to manipulate this individual. It's just awesome. <laughs> uh, not just trying, succeeding. Yes, well. So, so I have, I have a, a, just, a, just a crazy geeky question. Do, do you think Smee knew to ask him, but Captain, we don't know where Pan's hideout is, or was or did or was Hook that smart that he just knew how to play both Tinkerbell and Smee? Bad dude, man. I'm telling you, he's a smart guy. He's a bad dude. It may have been. I don't know. I'm thinking they rehearsed it because just in case Smee would not remember. <laughs> Smee was pretty drunk at that point, the way he was thinking about this. <laughs> this is very true. That's always bothered me for some reason, or not bothered me. I've always wanted to know that. Because you, you have to figure if he told Smee what to say, Smee would have messed it up, right? Right. But if you draw the conversation, yeah. He's manipulating the moment. It works for yeah. me. It, it works fabulously. Uh, and Tinkerbell leads him, leads, uh, leads Wendy there, or leads hook to Wendy, rather, and manages to plant a bomb, kidnap the Lost Boys, draw them aboard the ship, and plant the bomb that ultimately blows up uh, Peter and Tinkerbell. That leads us to the moment where we have uh, Pan admitting his, the depth of his feelings for Tinkerbell, which is the most serious moment of the film, uh, and again, gives such a depth to Peter's character that you don't you don't necessarily think of right when you think Peter Pan you don't think uh, uh you think of the carefree boy but in that moment after Tinkerbell is blown up when he admits how much she means to him uh it's very touching yeah no argument there <laughs> <laughs> and but and then we get the fun the, the really fun parts of the movie which is the end fight uh of Peter and Hook 
uh, fighting on the on on the pirate ship, which. You guys were talking about we were talking about Peter Pan's flight, but my favorite Peter Pan theme park moment of all is in Disneyland when the sailing ship Columbia comes around the bend and Peter Pan is flying around and fighting Captain Hook. There's not much to top that as far as a moment for me at a Disney park. It's a great reveal. It's a great yeah. reveal when you turn that corner. It, it, Todd, you haven't been out there yet, right? Cheryl, you guys haven't been there. I think the Columbia was closed when we went out. It was. So I haven't seen that. Oh no! Yeah, that 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 alone for me tell uh, is, is the thing that I say uh, makes Disneyland Fantasmic better. But that's a whole other show. But then, of course, Peter takes takes everyone home, and we get the the lesson from the film in the very end in the in the um, in the in the climax where Mister and Missus Darling uh, return home and and find the children. And when they look out the window and Mr. Darling recognizes Peter Pan's ship flying off into the clouds, and that's where it brings it all home, because we didn't mention this at the beginning. But at the very beginning of the film, there's a, the line said, the narrator says, this has happened before and it will all happen again. And that's where we get sort of the reveal from Mr. Darling that perhaps, and we're left to infer it ourselves, he had met Peter Pan before and he had gone to Neverland and this had happened and... and that kind of brings it all home. And like I said, for me, the, the older I get, the more touched I am by the ending of the movie. You're right. I mean, did you know the entire Battlestar Galactica series that they just did was based on that one line? I did not know that. Nerd yes. alert. What? Nerd alert. That's right. <laughs> this, this happened. But you know, you don't understand. You're saying that, but that's – and okay, we know I'm a nerd, so there's no real <laughs> – there's no real question there. But that, I, I think we all are, yes. That, that's what drew me to that series instantly, because as soon as they started quoting that line as scripture in, in, the, in the show, and it was like, and it's, it's how the show starts out, it's like, it's just incredibly amazing. All the characters constantly repeat it, and, and it was the whole basis for the Cylons, of the, and, and that the Cylon, you know, space itself was the Neverland in the, in the thing. It's just awesome, so. But no, this is not Battlestar Galactica podcast, so we can go on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we've talked about a great deal of the movie, but one of the things we haven't talked about is, is uh, Tinkerbell and, and Margaret Carey's work as the model for Tinkerbell. Um, so obviously Tinkerbell does not speak in the movie, which is a, a creative choice. Um, but, but Margaret Carey's movements and uh, serving as the model, I think, uh, is something that has had, I should say, gone unsung for quite a long time until uh, recently when she's been able to, to be out there and, and people have been able to meet her and see uh, see her and, and know her as the model for Tinkerbell. You mean like Lou Mangiello in episode 15 of WW Radio? <laughs> exactly like Lou Mangiello. <laughs> yeah, listen, I love Margaret Carey because she took the fact that she was the model that, for Tinkerbell and she's made an entirely new second career out of it. And everyone knows her. Everyone knows Margaret Carey now as Tinkerbell. And I think that's great. I think that's great for her. And when you see her do a presentation and hear her talk like Tinkerbell, and even at her very young age of whatever she is, when she does those movements and puts her hands on her hips, she's Tinkerbell. Like, you are like, I get it. I totally see it. When she's on the mirror looking at her hips, like how wide her hips are, you can see her movements now in the film clearly. 
Um, it, it's actually the other controversy of the movie, you know, right? Because up until the Disney depiction of Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell had no form. Yes, she was a light, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually oh, it's actually a technological marvel what they used to do. They used to they used to actually do it um, as a reflection from it had to be a circular mirror of a certain size to get the right shape on the ground, and they would shine the and they would shine what was back then the equivalent of a modern spotlight against the mirror to make the light super bright, and then they'd use the mirror to move her around the stage. Impressive. Yeah. Very. And now she's sort of come to be. You know, she is the symbol for Disney. She is, she is a representation of Disney. Absolutely. I, yeah, there's there's no question there. I mean, it's, you know, she's the uh, only character that's part of their movie logo, right? Because she she does the pixie dust over the castle every single time you see a movie. You know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, and, and she has, has been since this came out, right? So, I mean, she opened the World of Color show, uh, the Disney, you know, the the Disney TV shows, the Wonderful World of Disney. She's always been front and center, uh, and now is associated with the castle, like you said, you know, in front of the logo and you know, flying over Cinderella Castle for wishes. Um, but somehow, between 1953 and and whenever her next appearance was, she got a wand. She went out to Ollivanders and got herself a wand because she doesn't use one in the film. She never has a wand in the film. Right? Isn't there, isn't there no wand in the film? You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had never thought of that before, but you're right. Now I'm, now I'm just sitting here picturing in my head all the different things that she's, she's using the wand for and why I've never noticed this before. <laughs> <laughs> and where did she get it? Like, is there a little fairy wand shop? There's, no way, she went, she, there's no way she went to Universal Studios. Mickey, no, ha- Mickey, must, my, Mickey may have a, wand, extra, a few extra wands. <laughs> <laughs> he was so, a sorcerer's apprentice. Now, now here's an interesting thing, right? So, so Disney uh, plays the words pixies and fairies interchangeably these days. But in the movie, she she's only she's actually referred to as a pixie, not a fairy, right? Yes, I believe so. But nowadays, she's the fairy queen, basically. Not really. But no, she's not the queen. No, but she's going to be someday. I just have that. No, scene she's not. <laughs> No. But she's yes, she's she is she is of the Disney fairies now. Yes. Another interesting I do not claim to know the difference between a pixie and a fairy. Um so I will stay on the debate cuz I'm not even sure what the difference is. Yeah. And, and the the origin of her name that they give in the modern animated series actually goes all the way back to Barry's original work. Is she's Tinker Bell because she was a t- her name is Bell and she's a tinker. And back then, a tinker was someone who repaired pots and pans. So that was that would have been her original function as Tinker Bell, except that she ran away and hung out with Peter Pan somewhere, you know. Didn't okay. they show that in one of the? Um, oh gosh, I, my kids have it. One of the the, the DVDs. Um, oh God, I can't think of what the what was the first DVD they made where they showed her sort of tinkering. Uh, as a tinker in one of the original... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. They, they, ex- they expanded quite a bit what the concept of a tinker was beyond, beyond Barry's original concept where she was just fixing everything. Because there's a very... There's a scene that's... It's almost reminiscent to that scene in Bugs Life where 
where he's making all the equipment where he's like firing the the corn hut the grass seeds around and stuff like that she's doing like very similar things if you've ever watched if you've ever if you can if you've seen yeah. the I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I didn't. I didn't care for the Tinkerbell movies. However, again, as previously mentioned, I do have a five-year-old daughter, so I've seen them many times. <laughs> All right. So that is that is our discussion of Peter Pan. But as always, we like to end up the show with ratings. So I will. I will go to Mr. Todd Perlmutter first and see what what his thoughts were on Peter Pan. Um. I like Lou. This is uh, well Lou, for Lou. This is his favorite movie. This is one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. I used to sleep with a poster of Peter Pan above my bed while growing up, kind of thing. So it's uh, it's a very you know the picture is ingrained in me forever kind of thing. So uh, for me, this is a four and a half stars. There we go. Out of out of five, and Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, what what would you say? I'm going to go higher than my husband. I'm going to go 4.75. It's almost wow. at that five point for me. Um, you know, I just have the few questions and then I'll, I'll be fine. But it, it's pretty much well done. I, I couldn't agree more. I am also with you, uh, with you, Todd, as a four and a half. It's, uh, you know, as previously mentioned, Peter Pan's not my favorite character in Disney. Although, Lou, you are wearing me down. But I, I will I will go with a four and a half out of five. I have a feeling, Lou, I know where you're going to end up on this. I'm going to turn it up to an 11. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive the obscure reference. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect film, although Mary Poppins comes very, very close to it. Um, I, I think Peter Pan, for me, and yes, I am very much a nostalgic. I, I love the classic hand-drawn animation. I love the stories. I love the characters. I love the character development. I love how Peter Pan is so much, because of this film, a part of pop culture. It's expanded into many other books and franchises. It still resonates with young kids. Ryan, you said you have a young daughter. My kids watch Peter Pan. They love it as much as the latest Disney film that comes out. And I think it says something to a film like this truly being timeless. Uh, 60 some odd years later the film still very much holds its own and I think it goes to that sort of perfect storm of animation and story and characters and music and everything else that sort of comes together that, to make the film what it is absolutely absolutely agree so that is our look at Peter Pan I want to thank our special guest Mr. Lou Mangello. Uh, do them a favor, folks. Go over to WDWRadio.com. Go check out the audio guides. Check out the trivia books. Check out the podcast. Um, the video cast. Am I missing anything, Lou? You're the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> uh, what else? Celebrations Magazine? Yes. Join the running team? Yes. And I'm coming out with a line of Peter Pan underrooms soon, so stay tuned. No, thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate you, uh, you coming and having me on. I really enjoyed sort of talking about this film. Cool. Thanks for coming. Yes, thank you so much. So until next week, you can keep in touch with us. You can let us know what you think of this show. Go over to DisneyFilmProject.com, and you can leave a comment on the show notes there. 
You can tweet us at Diz Film Project, or you can go over to Facebook and search for Disney Film Project and let us know what you think of the show there. You can keep in touch with all of us on our various and sundry blogging platforms. You can check out Todd and myself over at touringplans.com. Check out Bree's attractions blogs, my film blogs, and Todd's chief technical wizardry over at DisneyDrivenLife.com. And you can keep up with Cheryl's travails trying to keep this podcast together at about.me slash Cheryl P3. And also, don't forget to check out Magic 24.7. Listen to the box office report sponsored by us here at Disney Film Project. So go over to magic247radio.com and listen to that show so you can check out the box office report. So until next week, folks, keep it watching the movies. All this has happened before, and it will all happen again. Tinkerbell, I hereby banish you forever. Please, not forever. Well, for a week, then. This ain't no place for a respectable pirate. The second star to the right and straight on to the morning. <laughs> <laughs>